The Sport Industry Access Podcast, episode 69. How important is sleep in elite sports? another episode of the Sport Industry Access Podcast. I'm your host, Ed Bowers. As always, my goal each week is to provide you a special guest who is a sports expert in a specific field in the sports industry, especially if you have an interest in pursuing a career in sports performance. I hope today's episode can be useful to you with regards to your interests and needs. Now, getting back to today's show, today's special guest is Nick Littlehales. Nick is a sleep specialist and founder of the Sports Sleep Coach. With over 30 years of experience in the world of sleep and 15 years dedicated to support elite athletes by working with sporting organisations such as Team Sky, the professional cycling team, Manchester United Football Club, British Athletics, England Rugby, English Institute of Sport and many more, I can proudly say it's a privilege to have Nick as a special guest on the show. That's when today's episode, Nick will share his sports career journey and explain to you why sleep's so important in elite sport and in your general life. Nick, it's a privilege to have you on the show. Please can you share your sports career journey to listeners? When did it all start? It probably started when I first enjoyed playing sport at school. Uh, tried to aspire to be an athlete in some sort of sport, to the detriment of my education, no doubt. I had a little bit of a period of time uh, in the world of golf as an aspiring professional. Different circumstances to where we are today. Uh, this was the late 90s, you know. The world is completely different to that world now. Uh, I was only the late 80s when I was doing that. I got into the you know, to pay the mortgage, to look after the family, you know, paying the bills, I ended up becoming uh, working for a company called Slumberland Beds. And Slumberland, you know, so I was a salesman on the road. I was driving a car around, flogging beds. I think because of my background of working in golf and sports, I was a very individual person. I was a very dedicated person. I was self-motivated because nobody tells you to play golf. You have to make it yourself. And I suppose I just impacted that on this this more sensible role and just looked at things differently, uh, listened to how everybody wanted me to do things. And then I didn't change them for the sake of it. I just thought there's a better way of doing this. And then eventually I found myself as a sales and marketing director. So I went from a sales rep to one of the youngest board directors the company's ever seen at 32 years of age. And that wasn't because... You know, I had the qualifications, but I had a lot of personal experience and uh, and adaptability and understanding and coaching with the members at the golf club and and being able to to get yourself from A to B. So I think, you know, while I was doing it, I hadn't got a clue. But looking back, a lot of those skill sets of dealing with people, of understanding people, integrating with people, not always taking things on face value, knowing that there is always a better way to do something. And, and the better way to do something is normally because it's you. So even if you're doing something exactly the same as somebody else, 
you're doing it slightly different because it's you. So your character, uh, how you approach things, how you speak, how much you listen, all of those factors come in. So, you know, I was given that particular role. I spent quite a long time as a sales and marketing director traveling around the world without a phone, Ed, uh, which is almost inconceivable these days. And I looked at all the, you know, I was traveling around, I was making beds, designing beds, I was researching sleep, I was part of a company that was a leading brand, so I had to look for innovations, I had to lead, and all the time I was doing that, there was one consistent thing that was always there. We were generating loads of turnover, we were selling lots of products, uh, we were a very successful company, but all the time, the real thing about I was trying to convince people to buy slumberland beds because they were more comfortable, they were more this, they were more that, and people were coming into the marketplace and buying products, but in a really random way, and expecting product to change their lives, to help them sleep. And, and it actually was irrelevant because as a sales and marketing director, literally every piece of marketing, even today, you would see, is being made up, right? There's very little fact or clinical trial or any reason you know we are designed to sleep on anything anywhere anytime and there was one thing that just always baffled me was that we take sleep for granted it's not a performance criteria there's no education in schools or so by default not from parents to children and so it was just a complete sort of black hole and maybe a bit of you know I set up the first with a group of other colleagues, the first UK Sleep Council, because there wasn't one. We tried to educate people on sleep as well as products and environments and habits and hygiene. And But um, it really appeared to me that the clinical side from all the universities, all the specialized centers, had absolutely no impact on the population. And I got probably midlife crisis, early 40s, sat in my UK office, you know, in Oldham, Manchester at the time. And... I decided I was going to go off and do something else because I just, I just got, I suppose, disillusioned with the fact that, you know, whilst I was successful, whilst I was, had a fantastic job, um, the actual crux was helping people sleep. And just by giving them some product just didn't do anything. So I kind of felt like I knew all of this information about sleep. I was involved in making product, but the two things don't come together. Um, I hear all this stuff from the clinical side and the professors I work with, who, who obviously know better than I do because I'm not an academic and I'm not qualified, but I couldn't put two and two together. So I sort of thought, well, you tell everybody to get eight hours a night and don't eat too late and get to constant wait times and all this sort of stuff. But I don't meet anybody who's able to do that and or even achieve it. So maybe we're just giving them the wrong information. So I was working a 12-month contract, so I was employing people to replace me in the company as a board director and twiddling my thumbs, and I just thought, I wonder if sport is doing anything different. Uh, now we're talking 97, 98. So imagine that world, which Ed, you'll have no idea what that is about. Huh? Um, so I, I wrote a letter to Alex Ferguson, the local football club. And I thought, I'll ask them, do you do anything about recovery, about sleep, about anything at all? Maybe there's something in there that would 
give me an insight into the world of sleep inside of sport. And to be honest, at that moment in time, everybody in my company and the rest of my industry thought I was a bit crazy. Because why on earth are you going anywhere near sport? We're, we're, we're a bed company, we're sleep, it's a very cottage industry, we just make beds, we do this, we talk about sleep and all that sort of stuff, but why on earth would you want to go there? Alex Ferguson, the manager at the time, asked all his staff, do we do anything in this area? Uh, the answer was no. So I got a response saying, no, what would you like to do about that? How, how could we, you know, what are you offering? I mean, I do, so the physio at the time, a guy called Dave Fever, had a, had a player called Gary Pallister, centre half, and they were wrapping him in cotton wool. So he would never train, he would only play. And so they were really fascinated about his recovery from a physical point of view. And so it just intrigued the physio that just maybe while the player was away from their control, i.e. at home and away from the sport, just maybe he might be debilitating and he created a word. So rehabilitation, debilitation. And so I, because of my competence in, in product, I had a lot of knowledge about sleep, but this was about product. Uh, we made some checks and the player was sleeping on some rock hard, orthopedic, chiropractically endorsed, whatever product. Uh, so I made some changes, which was more relative to his body profile, to a surface that would promote a better sleeping position and da 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 And whilst you can't resolve a lower back issue like that without going in with a knife, um, they started to see some improvements. And so that intrigued them. So if it had been any other club, Ed, any other club, I don't think I'd have even gotten a response in the late 90s to an inquiry about sleep recovery and sports. Uh, no sports scientists anywhere, right? There was none of them in there, none of them. It was like a, a new thing that came later. You'd have a physio, you'd have a doctor, and you'd have the coach, you know, and that would be it. No data management, really. You know, none of what, all the stuff that's around today. So to actually start talking about sleep and mental and physical recovery within an environment like that in the late 90s with a, a football team dominated by young males, wealthy young males with no fear, was probably the craziest thing that you could have ever done. As the dialogue opened up, we started, they started to enjoy my whole perspective about the world of sleep. They started to enjoy the perspective about products and environments. Uh, and so I was asked to, to basically develop those thoughts and maybe talk to the players. So while I was going through my 12 months contract, while I was twiddling my thumbs, suddenly I was going in and out of Manchester United's training ground uh, my company didn't really mind what I was doing because they didn't really care and they didn't really see any advantage in it. And um, so the media who hang around outside Manchester United's training ground and sort of, sort of who is this guy who's coming in and out sort of thing. And the, the, the guys on the gates knew it wasn't an agent, knew it wasn't a manager, knew it wasn't a player, knew it wasn't anybody. So they just were quite happy to just 
tell the guys on the door, it's all right, it's nobody special, it's just somebody talking to the players about sleep. And they went, coach is a word they know in sport. They put sleep, and they went, ah, so these pampered Manchester United footballers have now got a sleep coach, for heaven's sake, who's probably tucking them in, reading bedtime stories, whatever. The football's gone mad, right? But in the background... No, 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 no. With the physio, and then subsequently the new physio, a guy called Rob Swire, who recently retired, we had a, we were starting to look at things. And we had a group of players who were all homegrown, basically. Totally different to today. So a lot of these guys, none of them were on social media, none of them are, you know, texting each other and everything else. They were basically, the, the, they, they were called the class of 92, the class of 92 was David Beckham, Ryan Giggs, the Neville brothers, Skulls and Butt. And there were a group of players under the wing of Alex Ferguson who'd come through the ranks. None of these things that the modern day generation has. So we started to, right, let's look at what they're sleeping on. Because we did it with Gary, maybe we can do it with the rest. Um, let's look at, we want to double up pre-season training for the first time, said Alex. So we want to train in the morning and in the afternoon. So we said, why don't we create a recovery room um, where the players can actually go and effectively, for, the, for all your listeners, take a nap. Why would they want to take a nap? What benefit would that be? But the physio and I and others sort of said, you know, the, the physio took this all on board and said, I, I believe in this, so let's try and do it. So even in 1998, with the class of 92, with Manchester United, who then won the treble in one fantastic game against Bayern Munich when they sneaked a few goals. So Manchester United was right high on the agenda. And that team was right high on the agenda. Um, and so from that particular point, it's sort of, I suddenly was given the title as a sleep coach. I was not being allowed to change that process. The Manchester United players started influencing the England squad because they did. The England squad were getting in touch with me. The physio at the England squad was shared with Arsenal Football Club, Gary Lewin. He was an open-minded guy and decided he, he liked all of this as well. So he got me into to talk to all the first-team squad at Arsenal. Um, and that was really the moment when I had to sort of, I don't know, create, make up, what on earth a sleep coach does with a team of footballers. Um, so I tried to find things that would redefine their approach, redefine their thought process. So we stopped talking about sleep and talk about mental and physical recovery, starting to talk about it in, in a way that we don't want to waste valuable time doing it. We want to get the best from it in a, in a smarter way. So I, I just had to try and find a language and a communication process of talking to young people who principally, to be honest, Ed, would find themselves in a room with a sleep coach who's a bloke, and they're all blokes, and they're all young guys, and we're talking sleep, which couldn't be further from their agenda on any day. Right? But since that moment in time, I was very fortunate, I suppose, to have my UK office was next to a football club with a manager who was very open-minded. It could have stopped there and then. but And with Gary Lewin, another step that moved that along. Then 
Uh, we did something quite significant at the Euro 2004 Championships in Portugal, where we completely impacted on the hotel where the players were all staying and everything else with the manager Sven-Goran Eriksson and his doctor Leif Sward and driven by Gary, the uh, physio. And then there was another little key moment when another open-minded group of people, which was called British Cycling, and they were charged with trying to, to try and get cycling famous in the UK again. Um, and there were challenges to do that. And there was a double side to that is to try and get all of us on our bikes, riding around the streets and renting them, you know. And so that the whole thing, the focus on cycling was if we can make cycling famous in Britain then we can get more people riding down the cycle lanes and da, 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 and we can save some money in the NHS. You know, it's a, an invest and reward situation. But because they had their strategy was about marginal gains, the aggregation of marginal gains. That meant they have to look at everything. So they had to look at sleep. And whereas from the clinical side, a lot of the information they found too intrusive uh, and wouldn't be that impactful on the team, there just happened to be a sleep coach knocking around who seemed to have an approach that could be used. So right time, right place, I was used. And from that moment on, the whole sorts of techniques that I encapsulated and developed uh, were then impacted on British cycling in that aggregation of marginal gains. It also, Team Sky was born at the same time. So which British Cycling managed Team Sky. So over the next few years, from about 2008-9, eventually that culminated around 2012. Not only did the whole of British Cycling road and track, uh, male and female and Paralympic cycling squads, all followed this process, even with their own sleep kits that they travel with, all the way into 2012. And they, they once again broke records, and and also Bradley Wiggins was the first British rider to set on the Tour de France. And he also, you know, got the time trial. So around 2012, there was this whole thing where British Cycling and Team Sky just all came together in one London 2012 moment of the first Tour de France winner and breaking records left, right and centre. The aggregation of marginal gains obviously works. The Australians didn't like it because, once again, something's going on in British cycling that keeps winning. And then suddenly, uh, you've got some key people talking about pillows, duvets, sleep, recovery on TV as part of their real process. So that took it up to another level. And since that particular point to where we are now, you know, there's been a seismic shift in the way that we live our lives from when I started this in 98. And along that route, we're now in a completely different world. And so recovery has become the subject matter. It's key to every human being. And because we've had no education, because we've got nothing to benchmark against, we're now starting to see some of the fairly significant health factors the, the red flags everywhere in all walks of life because we're just in a 24-7 environment without the recovery process involved in that 
and we're just coming down left, right and centre in all sports. So I think along the journey, you know, you hear things, you know, never give up. You've got to give up sometimes because if all the things in front of you indicate that this is not working, then you shouldn't flog your heart out and spend even more money trying to do it, of course. But sometimes if you believe in something, then maybe, you know, the reason why I started to look in a different direction is because at some point, somebody's got to do something about this. They've got to change the perspective. So whether it happens this week or next week, it's something I cannot ignore. So I'll just keep doing it. And along the route, there was always an opportunity just to keep me alive. And I, I've been going bust every week for 18 years. You know, it's because of all of that process. But finally, we've got to a place where, you know, I literally get inquiries every single day from schools, universities, from pilots, from surgeons, from nurses, to principals, to CEOs, from athletes, every sport on the planet and every individual on the planet and parents and all sorts of stuff. Because finally, finally, I think we're about to start getting it. So as a journey, it's been a fascinating one, but maybe for a lot of people, you know, they would have given up a long time ago. Nick, I'm literally blown away. And the one thing that clears to my mind, which inspires me, that you've got to be very open-minded. With regards to your knowledge about sleep, what inspired you to write a book about sleep? To be honest, I, you know, I was just cracking on doing my own thing and, and starting to see a lot more interest in what I was doing, which was fine. I got contacted by a publisher, um, so I didn't actively go out to do anything. Um, they were, they were trying to, they were trying to under an umbrella of, of life, they were trying to put a slightly different perspective, maybe more modern day perspective, let's say on the certain key health subjects, you know, what we eat, nutrition, well-being, you know, mindfulness, mental side and, and, and sleep. So they looked around and you know, one of the great things is maybe doing something that's crazy very early on, considered crazy. I didn't think it was crazy. I was just doing what I do. Um, but others thought it was crazy. Is that uh, I was the probably the first ever person to put coach after sleep. The first person to try and talk about sleep in sports. So when they look at what I was doing... It fascinated them as publishers, and they look at all your content, you know, as you, as you project who you are, which is really important, to differentiate yourself. You know, I didn't have a problem being a sports sleep coach because there's nobody else doing it. But if you're a physio, if you're whatever it is, sports science, whatever area you are in and how qualified you're in, you do have to put yourself out in that marketplace and differentiate yourself because if you don't, then how are you going to make a difference? Because nobody's interested in, in you as a physiotherapist or sports science. They want to know, are you going to make a difference? Because they can just pick sports science people off every rack. You're qualified, you're this and that, but are you going to make a difference? And the difference is about your character, your viewpoint, how you look at things. 
So they looked at all of that and just went, this guy must know what he's doing because he works with some serious people, right? So whether he's not, whether he's unqualified and he's not academic, all the people he's working with are. So they must know that he's got something, you know, the magic touch or something. So they asked me, would I write the book? And to be honest, my first impressions was to say, I don't really want to do that because, you know, in my own little way, with my own clients, we have a nice relationship and everything's done by referral. So if I work with them, they say Nick's great. So they work with me. So they know I'm great because they said I'm great. So we're all in a happy, comfortable world. To write a book about everything I do and make it available to the world was almost like putting your head above the parapet. People will criticize me and go, that's not true and this isn't right. He doesn't know what he's talking about. You know, he's not qualified to say this or say that. So initially I was a bit like, ooh, I don't want to do that. But then I thought they pressed me for quite a while and I said, okay. So we started working on it. It wasn't a self-help book. It wasn't trying to change the world. It was just sort of like Nixon, elite sports sleep coach. This is his story. And within the story, here's all his techniques that might be useful to you to take a different perspective on sleep from what you've had before. So it got published. And principally, it's about human beings. It's about the complete misunderstandings and myths about sleep. It's about the modern day of how we try and get from A to B and the realities of life and how to apply, you know, some of the things that human beings have already done because all I did is just look in my browser and go, have we slept any differently? And it popped up saying yes. Up until the light bulb came along, we never slept like this. So I said, oh, that's interesting. How can I use that? But you should have been taught that at school, Ed, right? You should have been taught that at school, and your parents should have told you that, right? So when it went out, the publishers had forecasts for the book, and that's how they pay you in advance. So they give you a bit of money, knowing that they're going to sell a number of books, and they'll get it all back. Well, they smashed that within a week, you know, and it's gone into 13 countries now. So right across the globe, there are human beings right across the globe who all have the same problem of being completely out of sync with the natural circadian rhythms of every day, not making full advantage of their personal chronotypes, their sleep characteristics, and also letting it damage them. They don't realize that trying to sleep for eight hours at night in one block is the most hilarious thing you've ever come across, and it's really hard, and that's why we find it hard. But we've always slept in what's called a polyphasic way, so shorter periods more often. And when you relate that to sport, there's no schedule going on at all in any sport that allows you to sleep for long blocks like that. It just doesn't happen. You know, you've got Olympic swimmers getting up at four o'clock in the morning and not doing their heat until nine, ten o'clock at night because of because of the world of sport and the audience. And there's Usain Bolt recently at the World Championships in London. And, you know, they're performing at nine, ten o'clock at night. 
in the dark, under floodlights. And you just go, where's his eight-hour schedule and don't eat too late? And you sort of go. So I think what happened was it just simply revealed that up until now, nobody has ever challenged what was obviously a myth. And the reason why we haven't challenged it is because up until the late 90s, we had lots of recovery breaks. We didn't plan for them, but we had lots of recovery breaks. What's happened now is we've removed pretty much all of them through technology, through everything else, and 24-7. So once you take all of those natural recovery breaks, and all it is, Ed, is if I'm waiting for a train to come and meet you later on in the day, I'm just looking at the weather and people watching, I'm doing nothing. So it's a recovery break. But now I'm actually getting emails and responding to emails and texts and various and checking things. So I'm actually I'm taking all my little mental recovery breaks away. So we've just stripped it. So from that particular point to here, we've just done it again. So what you've got now is even more pressure on that. And so I think the book has just been People read it, and as they start to go from chapter to chapter, they just start going, you know, that makes sense. That is why I do this. That is why I do that. That's why that's happening. That's why this is happening. Oh, my God, I'm going to stop doing that, stop worrying about that, and start doing this tomorrow. So it's, you know, the strangest thing. Uh, I went to launch some sportswear for, some sportswear for Jack Wills, the fashion house. They brought a sleep coach along to help support their sportswear brand. And you go, wow, you know, wow, why did you do that? Because it's important. Recovery is important as well as exercise. It's a balance. So we'll bring along the elite sports sleep coach. Okay. How many are there of them? Just one. That's Nick. So sometimes it's nice to have a bit of competition. Because there's a way to benchmark things. Sometimes you just have to get out there on your own. And if you're out there on your own, you've got no way for anybody to understand whether you're good or bad. You're just doing your thing. But if my story is anything to go by, one day, one day, then literally everybody turns around and says, help Nick. Because you're the only one who's got the experience of those 18 years. You're the only one who's who, who challenged stuff. So we really need you now. But for 18 years, it's been a very lonely road. So that's where we are today. Out of interest, what have you been up to recently? And what are your plans for your future now? Just trying to balance to be honestly the amount of inquiries the amount of interest which impacts on my very small business so there is a a business element to how do we cope with this and manage it you don't want to get too excited and grow too quickly and all that sort of stuff because you know there's always these little what they used to call in the old days purple patches you know so we're in a purple patch but it doesn't always last you know you got to deal with things you know the book has means I have no control who's picking it up. So before I was very much involved in elite sports. So if I did something with that group, then they would say, yes, you should look at this. Uh, and in a lot of sports science areas, they're all part of one club. They're not actually 
part of the sport in that sense. So if there's a sports science person or physio at one club, they'll tell the other sports science guy, this really works, so you should use that, because they're about the human beings, about the players, not necessarily the club as a performance factor, and, and don't tell that club about what we do, because they might beat us. It's about humans, okay? So they all talk together, and so sometimes, you know, Manchester United, Manchester City will, sports science guy at Manchester City will contact the sports science guy at Manchester United because they, they're not in conflict and say, have you got anything you're doing with the players that could be useful for my players? And he'll say, try this and try that. And they go, oh, great, thanks very much. Because, you know, that's the nature of where they sit. So all my work came from referrals. But the book, anybody can pick it up. So what's happening to me now? Schools, universities, pilots all across the globe, doctors, air traffic controllers, kids, teenagers, you name it. They're just coming in left, right and centre. They've been reading the book, but they get inspired to do more things. Uh, I've been asked to write another book. You know, so at this moment in time, to be honest with you, I haven't got a clue. Nick, just looking back from those 18 years now, what have you enjoyed the most from that journey? reflecting nobody's asked me that question what on earth have i enjoyed most from all of those 18 years oh it might sound it might sound a little bit you know i've read that in a book somewhere but i suppose my endeavors when i was a young guy at school just trying to do every sport possible you know, I had some trials with the cricket club and trials with the football club. Ended up being most of those things. Even if you're part of a team, is is a really individual thing. You know, particularly golf. There's lots of sports, athletic. You're very individual. So I suppose my dad, just to go off on a slight tangent, actually did something. <laughs> it's nothing like I've done, but he actually invented uh, petrol injection which was something that changed engines. So injecting fuel into a piston created more power. And he ended up as an engineer ending up in Formula One in those days. Uh, so Jack Brabham a long time ago. So I suppose there's a bit of a DNA thing with my father who sort of challenged engineering to say, can we change this? What can we do to change it? A bit of an inventor maybe or challenger. So I think the one thing that I've enjoyed most along the route is that I've been self-employed. I'm in charge of my life. If I want to continue doing this, then nobody can tell me to stop it. I can deal with the challenges in my own particular way. I can deal with the ups and the highs and the lows, which has been great fun. But I think I was inventing something. Absolutely. And honestly, this chat, I've done 63 interviews and this interview has probably blown me away the most. And I feel like we're at a great stage of the interview, Nick, where I'd like to finish with an inspirational question. What advice would you give to university sports students who are unsure what they want to do after they leave university? I'll tell you what, Ed, I've done a lot of podcasts in the last 12 months and you just asked two questions nobody else has ever asked. And I really don't know what the answers to either of them. So... Um, but they're great questions, great questions, and, and I will think about that for some time. What uh, Remind me of that final question again. 
What advice would you give to university sports students who are unsure what they want to do after graduation? If they're unsure about what they want to do, I think there's one of those sort of hard facts of life is then uh, you've got some big decisions to make because you should do. You should have had a reason why you've actually done that particular piece of education degree, why you focused on that particular area. A lot of areas, I suppose, you're a bit, you could be classed as being a bit multitasking in sports science. So I would probably, I would look in the mirror. I would try to define who I was, you know, because, you know, that's important. It's about your character. I'd probably try and find the bit that I enjoy the most. Right? And I don't mean because it's easy. The, what, the bit that you've, you're really comfortable with, that really you don't have to think about too much, the, the one that you're really interested in, whichever bit that might be, because if you just go, I'm a sports science person or I'm a physio, well, which bit of the human anatomy fascinates you? Because you focus on that bit. So I'm the best ankle physio on the planet. Do you know what I mean? Because I love ankles, right? So you find something you know, that fits your character. There's no point me trying to be a doctor. I'm not. There's no point me trying to to talk like I'm a, a clinical professor in sleep. I am not. There's no point that, you know, people can see you for who you are. So what can, you know, how can Nick be a physio and he looks at certain things and he comes up and adds a bit of his quirky character, has a bit of this and a bit of that and says, right, that's what I'm going to focus on. And then I'm going to go into sport and say, look, this is me and this is what I love and this is a bit I focus on. I can do all of these other things. That's fine because I'm qualified in doing it. But I tell you what, if you're looking for a marginal gain in sport then I am a physio who is absolutely fascinated by little toes, the little one right on the end. And I tell you what, I can make that little toe work better on that footballer's foot than ever before. And if that adds up to you winning the Champions League, you'll love it. So I'm going in there and really focusing. This was not going to be an easy answer, and I, I don't know whether I'm even answering it, but there you go. But I think... In this modern world today and what we're going through, you are looking at marginal gains. You are looking at little significant changes. You are looking at adding those things up to make an overall. overall. So you do have people who really specialize in certain areas, but they, it's not that they just focus on that. You know, the club's got a sports science person and they do all of these other things, but their passion is there. That's where it is. And the only way which I would imagine is coming across after a long day on a Friday today, is the only way, by looking in the mirror and looking at yourself, probably get somebody else to do it for you, because we're the worst people to evaluate ourselves, is they create you, you try and find the bit that really interests you, and then what happens is, is you don't have to convince somebody or sell it to somebody because your passion, your drive, your enthusiasm is all about that. Not who you're selling it to or who you're trying to sell yourself to. So all the time when I go into places is, is I'm 
just doing what I do because that's what I do. I'm passionate about it. I can't stop it. I can't be, I just can't become passionate about it. I just am because that's my little subject. So people will buy in to your passion. And the only way you find it is to not be so broad spread, you know, so, and don't try and go into areas where you're not so competent and, 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 and it's easy to tell people to, to be different. Um, and you can try and do that physically and you can try and act and you can try and present yourself in a, in a particular way or imitate somebody else. And we are in a world that does a lot of that, but, uh, just get a friend to describe who you are, what's good about you, what annoys them, describe your character, find something in your, what you've qualified for. Because if you're not passionate about any one bit of those things, you shouldn't be doing it. And you will fail. Because every time you present yourself to somebody, it's just you did that degree, but were you really passionate? Why did you become a physio? Because I'm absolutely passionate about that particular part of the human anatomy. You know, see what I mean? So I think that's the great decision for people is they can't find something within what they've got in their toolbox that they can be passionate about. Then what they're going to do, they might as well, being hard, is stop wasting your time because you're not going to get into the system and particularly in sport because it's passion, it's dedication, people skills beyond belief um that makes a difference to to whether you know whether an athlete can make a difference or not so they don't want they don't want systems they don't want people who just follow processes uh they want people who can really make a difference and that's the only way and i I really don't know whether i answered that question properly because you asked two great ones nick you've definitely answered the question and you've highlighted so many elements i think the thing that just shines from this interview is passion i can definitely hear that from your voice what is the best way where people can interact with you with regards to your website and social media platforms you know all the normal platforms from pinterest instagram uh, at Sports Sleep Coach on Twitter is probably our most active at this moment in time until another one comes out next weekend um, and a bit of Facebook, LinkedIn. We are constantly posting uh, free content through Twitter, through blog posts on our website. So basically, the world comes in through my office. So anything that's going on about recovery or sleep or mental this or physical that or sport comes through this office and we pile all that together and condense it and provide free content all the time. So sportsleepcoach.co.uk is where you can go at sportsleepcoach on Twitter. Um, We're a very friendly company. um, So we'll accept questions via emails or anything like that. You can get in touch and ask us. We've got various simple access points with a, you can get a free profiler on the website so you can actually and we don't just get some automated system to process it if you do a free profiler on the site it actually hits our desk we look at your answers and we give you a a result and we say you are a long way away or you're not bad um we've got to test your chronotype so you can find out what your chronotype is we're about to do that we've got products um 
that I design as part of the whole technique that people can buy and add into their lives as part of a process. And to be honest, uh, probably before you do all of that, I just go to Amazon or a bookshop and get the book. Um, I would download it onto my Kindle or whatever MP3, or I get the downloadable version, stick your buds in your ear and just listen to me for six and a half hours. <laughs> Nick, that is great. To all the listeners listening in, all those links will be on my website relating to this blog post. Nick, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today. Thank you very much. Yeah, I really enjoyed it, and uh, good luck with your whole enterprise, which seems to be uh, it has got a really great cause to it, and I, I wish you well with it. And if there's anything I can help and support with that along the way, then you don't hesitate to get in touch. Wow. What an unbelievable career journey from Nick. And I really do hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. For me personally, this interview is one of the best on this podcast show, without a doubt. Mainly because the career advice is so authentic, where you and I can both relate to. But with regards to today's main topic, there is a clear indication that sleep has an important role in elite sport, but also in our general lives. But relating back to the career advice that Nick was sharing to you near the end of this interview, if you really want to pursue a career in the sports industry, you've got to be dedicated and you've got to enhance yourself with regards to your own personal characteristics. So you understand your strengths and weaknesses, for example. By applying that to yourself and understanding yourself, you will be able to shine around others where you can have a value in the sports industry by making a difference. By making a difference to the sports industry, you will be recognised, you will be employed, and your career journey in the sports industry will be a reality. So all I say relating to this interview, take on board what Nick was saying, take action, and good luck. Now, as always, at the end of each interview, I like to finish with an inspirational quote from my special guest so you can discover your career journey in the sports industry and take action. Nick said, you need to find something that interests you. Then what happens is you don't have to convince somebody or sell it to somebody because your passion, your drive, your enthusiasm is all about that. That is how you will be able to add value the sports industry going forward.